Good afternoon. You're listening to KFSK News for Wednesday, December 20th. I'm Hannah Floor. Petersburg's Borough Assembly voted unanimously to support a new bill that would tighten residency requirements for hunting, trapping, and sport fishing at Monday's regular meeting. Assemblymember Scott Newman called on the Assembly to write a letter in support of the bill. He says he wants to make sure those who are harvesting with resident licenses really live in Alaska. People can leave the state and still claim residency and still can come back um, and, and, and enjoy the benefits of being a resident of Alaska, even if they're gone um, for an undetermined amount of time. So it's my opinion this system, you know, the system's been abused. House Bill 201 would align the requirements for a resident hunting, trapping, or sport fishing license with the requirements to receive a permanent fund dividend, or PFD. That would limit the amount of time a person can be absent from Alaska and still qualify for a state license. People's primary residence must be in the state of Alaska to qualify for both the PFD and resident harvesting licenses. The PFD requires residents to physically be in the state for at least 180 days of each year. But there is no minimum minimum yearly requirement for a resident hunting, trapping, or fishing license in Alaska. House District 2 Representative Rebecca Hemshoot sponsored the bill. She says that she's heard stories from her constituents of people abusing the resident licenses. They come in with this freezer. They fill it with fish and game resources from the local areas that they harvest. Um, and then they run that freezer on propane and they take it back south with them. Resident licenses are cheaper than out-of-state permits. They also have higher bag limits, meaning residents can harvest a lot more game and fish. Hemshoot says that the beauty of the bill is that while it sets a higher standard for residency, it doesn't create more work for law enforcement. The goal of this is to decrease bureaucracy, if at all possible, and it might be a wash. It may not. The bill is meant to increase efficiency by creating a single proof of residency through eligibility for the PFD. Primary residency for licenses is currently assessed on a case-by-case basis, looking at things such as plane tickets and evidence of residency in other states. Ketchikan broke tourism records this year with 1.5 million visitors. A place many tourists end up is the town's oldest bar, the Arctic Bar, which was opened in 1937. It's famous with tourists and locals alike. Paula Weissel is the bar's longtime owner. For Coast Alaska's Tourism Today series, Jack Darrell stopped into the bar to talk to her about how she's seen the town change over her years serving up drinks. Picture this. You're new to town. It hasn't stopped raining since you got here. You're walking along Water Street past the cruise ship docks. Cars are whizzing by, just a pair of floating headlights. You pass a squat, unassuming bar between a Filipino restaurant and a sprawling souvenir shop called Sockeye Sam's. It looks warm and dry. Hey, Paula. You're in the Arctic bar, and you're talking to its co-owner, Paula Weissel. I know the bartender. She and I are friends. But when I ask her for a drink, that's when our friendship ends. Is she a man? Is she a mouse? It's time we had one on the house. Weissel knows a lot of bar songs. This one, she learned in Craig, a small logging town on nearby Prince of Wales Island. When Weissel was 17, she went to a wedding there. She brought a fake ID with her. 
She wasn't old enough to drink. We were um, there for like five days, and the third day, one of the girls said, Paula, you're going for a job interview tomorrow. And I said, I am? And she said, yeah. And I said, what am I going to be? And she says, you're going to be a bartender. I said, I'm going to be a bartender? Weissel calls herself a bit of a den mother for newcomers to catch a can and lifelong locals alike. Anything you need, honey, she says. You call me. It's a role that she's well known for in the community. Yeah, they're all my kids now. I don't have any kids of my own, but I run a big daycare center called the Arctic Bar. She's been behind a bar for almost 40 years and has owned this bar for 27 of them. Its original location was Creek Street in the days when it was dominated by brothels. According to a newspaper clipping that is laminated into the bar top, a 1956 flood swept the entire bar into the river. Weissel says for years afterwards, men would dive into the river and come up with cases of beer. Decades later, beer remained a popular choice if you weren't too picky. Back in the day, the Arctic had two kinds of beer, and they draft beer, and they'd say, well, what kind are they? I'd say, they're light and they're dark. And they'd say, oh, I know, but, but what are they called? They're, one's light and one's dark, and that's how it is. So you have one or don't. The new bar again stands in a central location on Water Street near the cruise ship docks. When the huge ships pull into port, the Arctic is in their shadow. Weissel has seen the town change over the decades. The fluctuations of the fishing industry, the booms and busts of logging, and now the town's current economic engine, tourism. It's just different. It, tourism is different than the logging and the fishing and the pipeline. The, the good old days are over, and so it's tourism now. And it, like I said, if you don't change... After so long, you, you're just going to fade. You're, it's not, you're not going to survive. But how has the bar had to change? Weissel says there's basic things, like having well over 100 credit cards left by customers. Oh, and they have to open earlier. It's totally different. Balls to the walls. You open at 8, people are waiting outside that door to get in. By state law, they can't come in before 8. You can't open at 7. You can't open at 6 in the morning. And I, I know it's crazy, but... Believe me, there's people that would like to have a cocktail at that time. They're on vacation. They're happy. You know, I get it. The bar is Weissel's life's work. She says there will come a day, though, that she won't be behind the bar. When that day comes, hopefully far in the future, she hopes one of her bartenders will buy the Arctic. She says she doesn't want the property to be bought by Disney Cruises or any of the other big outfits that would jump at the chance because of the Arctic's prime location. This is a common concern in Ketchikan. As the tourism industry expands, locals express worry about the increasing space it takes up around town. Just at this moment, there's ongoing debate among the borough's assembly about a swath of land north of the city. The borough plans to subdivide it to help with the borough's housing crisis. But, as one assembly member said, if we don't put restrictions on that land, tour companies and developers are going to put lodges on it. This sometimes adversarial relationship between locals and tourists isn't new, though. Weissel recalls when she first bought the bar. Her first act of business was removing a sign that the previous owner, Larry Buster Jr., had hung from the back deck. The sign was on full display when cruise ships pulled into port, and it said, Princess Cruise Line. As soon as the paperwork was done, I said, I got to go get something on the deck. And Larry said, the, the sign that I made that said, Princess Cruise Line, you might as well shoot yourself in the foot. Larry, as to have that sign out there. I just bought the bar. I'm sorry. I, I mean, come on. Times change, and, <laughs> and the sign had to go. Weissel says she gets it. Some locals just don't like tourists, and they wait to run errands, like picking up mail, until the cruise ships are gone. 
But she also says it plays an important role in keeping places like the Arctic alive. I, I'm not going to be mean to people and make them think that they'd never come in here. You cra- no, I mean, I want to welcome everybody and, and make sure everybody has a good time and has fun. Weissel pours herself a small glass of Jägermeister. She reminisces about her beginnings in Craig, a town she showed up in as a summer visitor, and learned songs that she hopes now won't be forgotten. I like humpback salmon, good old humpback salmon, caught by Alaska fishermen. I like crab and shellfish, they sure make a swell dish. I think the halibut is grand. I don't like T-bone steaks, cut from the steers in Texas, but give me fish, and I don't give a f*** if I do pay taxes. From the Arctic Bar in Ketchikan, I'm Jack Darrell. Sitka has seen huge growth in cruise tourism to nearly 600,000 passengers in 2023, about a threefold increase over what would have been considered a big summer before the pandemic. This figure has been in the news a lot lately, but there's another important number that residents haven't settled on. What is the right amount of cruise tourism? Sitka's Tourism Task Force is determined to find out. Robert Woolsey reports. If the growth in cruise traffic had been more gradual, Sitka might have found the sweet spot without looking for it. Now, a tourism task force has been charged with finding the magic number. They've been charged with a list of other things, too, but task force chair Phyllis Hackett says she got a nudge from City Hall to move the overall passenger count to the top of the list. And then in October, received a call from the city administrator, John Leach, to uh, bring him a number. Bring him the number because CLIA, Cruise Line International Association, and and the city are ready to develop an MOA, Memorandum of of Agreement, around this, and they need to have a number. So we started in earnest on that. The task force was created back in April, and Hackett says a majority of the nine-member group were involved in the industry over the summer, preventing any full meetings until after the season. Hackett said this helped create the space to formulate a plan. took time, at least for me, I'm the chair, um, to wrap our minds around how to go about even gathering a number. The task force's first town hall meeting was on November 27th. Rather than a shouting match, it was a carefully orchestrated data-gathering exercise with post-it notes and beans, all of which have been recorded and weighed. The next town hall will be December 7th when these data will be presented and residents will contribute more information toward helping the task force narrow down its target. The task force has representatives from various economic segments of the community, but member Camille Ferguson, who represents the Sitka tribe, said residents should not be overly concerned with that. She wants this process to be human-centered. You know, your relationship between these people are, are important than any kind of segment that there right. is. As long as your voice is heard and you are sharing your concerns in the manner that it will help us, you know, come up with that magical number. And I think that's the most important thing. After the Tourism Task Force identifies an appropriate level of cruise tourism for the community, its work will only be 20% finished. Other jobs include an annual review of the city's tourism funding, looking at land use and waterfront development regulations, regional strategies to advance Sitka's interest in the industry, and helping develop a tourism management best practices program. Hackett, a former member of the Sitka Assembly, does not mince words about best practices. These are the ways we'd like you to behave and run your businesses when you're in Sitka to help 
all of us, everybody, work better with, with what we have. Reporting in Sitka with help from Aaron Fulton, I'm Robert Woolsey. St. Paul Island and the Aleutians plans to revitalize reindeer meat processing in the Pribilofs, opening new streams of revenue and lowering prices in the island's community store along the way. The tribal government, the Aleut community of St. Paul, was awarded a federal grant worth over half a million dollars for the project earlier this month. Lauren Devine directs the tribe's Wildlife Research and Management Department. She says the grant came after persistent efforts to give the tribe a more active management role over the island's reindeer herd. We were looking at how could we develop the field protocols to service the reindeer and then get that meat to the grocery store to provide a low-cost, locally produced, organic, healthy protein source to tribal members. That also brings the benefits of being able to donate some meat to our local food bank, which is also owned and operated and run by the tribal government. Devine says reindeer were first brought to St. Paul in the early 1900s and that subsistence hunting has been consistent since then. But commercial processing is a different story. There was a certified kitchen and processing room in the grocery store building decades ago, but it has since closed. With the grant, the tribal government wants to create two to three new jobs and fill those positions with experts in field butchering and safe processing. You need to have a team that can communicate, work in the field together, and be able to shoot multiple reindeer in, within a short time frame and then go through the entire butchering process as quickly and efficiently as possible. The field protocol is very particular, uh, and in order to be able to sell the meat or sell any products from the meat, and so everything is very highly regulated. The reindeer meat will be sold fresh and frozen in the Aleut Community Store with priority given to St. Paul residents. Devine also hopes to explore potential export opportunities to specialty meat markets in Anchorage. Everyone is very excited to see this get off the ground. I am so thankful that it's a multi-year grant and that it gives us the time to really look at three years of building and developing the program so that we can have that time to fine-tune everything and be ready to transition into a longer-term implementation plan. Projects are expect- products are expected on shelves next year. For KFSK, I'm Hannah Floor.